Hello, welcome to Jenny and Paul Sell Out, the podcast where culture matters and selling out doesn't. I'm Paul Reesmandel, one half of your sellout team. My co-host, Jenny Benevento, will be joining in just a moment. On this episode, we will be exploring the life and art of superstar R&B artist R. Kelly. We'll be listening to some audio recorded live at R. Kelly 101, sponsored by Homeroom Chicago, which happened on October 9th of this year, 2012, at the Hungry Brain here in Jenny and Paul Sellout's home of Chicago, Illinois. So uh, Jenny's going to give us a little bit of an introduction and uh, tell us why we should even care about R. Kelly. So uh, keep your headphones plugged in and uh, keep that MP3 player playing. Hey, Jenny. Hey, Paul. So you did this uh, thing called Homeroom. Is it right? Yeah, Homeroom Chicago is a Chicago organization. They do semesters of talks in a bar that are just 101 sort of informative lectures. About popular culture topics? It could be actually anything. I think they've done physics-type topics. They've done metal um, in general. They've done... I was involved in their Insane Clown Posse one, obviously. Um, but yeah, just a variety of topics. And you were just, uh, you were part of the one, and we'll hear some of this on this episode, uh, about R. Kelly. Yes, recently. So I'd like you to tell everyone what interested you in R. Kelly. Why would you want to know anything about the, uh, this R&B pop singer who who is from Chicago, where of course we, we are based? Yes. Um, I mean, I think for me, it was seeing Trapped in the Closet, like, I liked his music previous to that. Um, not, I would say, not from a an oh, this music's really great point of view, but these lyrics are hilarious and ridiculous. And specifically, I would be talking about sex in the kitchen, um, which is about having sex with a lady in the kitchen with a very, very thin metaphor uh, tying the song together. Or I like the crotch on you, which seems like one of the least. Um, sexy ways to say that you want to have sex with someone. Um, so those sorts of songs. He has like a lot of extremely funny songs. He has like Sex Planet. Um, just any sort of metaphor that isn't really thought about as a sexual metaphor, he uses as a sexual metaphor. And so to me, those lyrics were just really funny. Um, and then he came out with um, Trapped in the Closet, which is right now 23 episodes long. And it's you know, 23, four to five minute long songs. Some of them are much shorter than that. But, um... And, it, and it's all the music video. Yeah, it's all a music video, but it's so it's um, him just telling a story. It's not really good for its song content. I mean, I think no one would say that it is good for that. That's not just my personal Because it's opinion. it's like two chords. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually just a story. And, I mean, he calls it a hip-hopera. And I think that's actually pretty accurate. It's sort of, um... A story told all all in music um, from, you know, and there's 20 characters. There's an insane number of characters. And at the event, someone did talk about how its relation to Wagner and sort of how similar it was. And I I think that was a really great point. It is very similar to, like, opera, but it's this person from the inner city of Chicago who can't read, who, um, I mean, does have some schooling in opera. But you would not expect to be an opera fan (laughs) writing sort of a street urban um crime based hip hopera 
So it's sort of the complexity and the maybe surface contradictions that kind of drew you in to learn more. Yeah, the ability to make this extreme project that's so single-minded and and focused, you know, in sort of genius sort of way, um, but also at the same time be like, did you really just talk about a midget? Like you, you're, you've done this huge project, and like you're gonna blow that line on a midget? Like what? So people will learn more as as they listen to the audio it's from uh, from this session uh, held at a, a bar called the uh, Hungry Brain here in Chicago, um, and uh, we'll hear a little bit about uh, from someone who went to high school briefly with R. Kelly as well. You'll talk more about um, his sort of artistic growth. And we'll hear from somebody who uh, was on the set of Trapped in the Closet doing craft services and giving a little background there. Um, and a little bit about from a musicologist providing a little bit of um, analysis from that standpoint, uh, right. looking at it as as a piece of musical art and especially comparing it again to, to opera, to Wagner. Uh, so you can all learn more about um, R. Kelly if you didn't already know him and weren't already uh, familiar. And I do understand, I just saw an advertisement on IFC that a new segment, a bunch of new segments of Trapped in the Closet are going into production or yeah, are in production. and one of our listeners actually wrote us, Nicole, to say that, yeah, they're coming out pretty soon, I guess. Um, they're already in production, so they should be finished fairly soon in the, in this year, I think. So he, he first, he started out, he produced the first five, five and then the independent film channel, IFC, Stepped in to help him produce the next 19. Yeah, they premiered on IFC. So, and IFC's discussion of it is sort of like, he's this, you know, what IFC is all about is is giving money to these um, auteurs who are like single-mindedly doing something totally bizarre. And so, I, I mean, I think it fits right in line with IFC's sort of mission statement. Well, set your TiVos, set your PBRs so you can catch it. We'll have to do a follow-up after these episodes drop. Yeah. Uh, But for now, you're going to learn more about R. Kelly. Okay. Thank you so much for coming. Tonight, it's really nice to see all of you here. Uh, my name is Seth. This is 101. And uh, I really am delighted to see so many people here interested in our topic. Um, it's, is that funny? Um, it's brought to you by a nonprofit uh, called Homeroom uh, that I work with. I, uh, I am going to host the evening tonight. And along with the great Fred Sasaki, I uh, program this series and we do it occasionally here at the wonderful Hungry Brain, Hungry Brain. Um, and uh, so our first presenter is uh, Jake Austin, who is someone that uh, has met R. Kelly personally. Um, if you don't know Jake, you, you probably do know something of his work. He's uh, a lifelong Chicagoan. Uh, for 20 years, he's been running uh, Rocktober Magazine. Uh, for almost as long, he's been running Chicagogo, one of the best shows, uh, local shows on TV. Um, and uh, he uh, was in a high school choir, is that right, Jake, with, with Robert Kelly? So uh, he's going to come up and shortly tell us a story about that. So it uh, kind of uh, is based a little bit on this photo that we're going to have. Uh, and Jake, you can tell us what's going on here and uh, take it away. So help me uh, welcome Jake to the stage. Thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, well, this is, um, I guess, going to uh, being in high school choir with, with Robert is... 
you know, it does not yield uh, unlimited anecdotes because Robert was not in high school for very long. He, uh, we both attended Kenwood Academy in Hyde Park. And in the 80s, Kenwood was, was one of the few Chicago public schools where you were required to read to be in the school. And Robert has a, a, a learning disorder, which has kind of been ambiguously, um, you know, he hasn't really had a doctor explain it, but he can't read, but he can kind of think in music. And he had, a, you know, kind of a unique situation in high school where he didn't really go to any classes except choir. And uh, our choir director kind of had made an arrangement to make that happen. This is, um, I think, the 1986 Christmas episode of the Vernon Jarrett television show. Vernon Jarrett was a, uh, a black journalist in Chicago. He always like, had an ascot on. He um, is the father-in-law of uh, Valerie Jarrett, who is the, works for the president. And so that's, this is Mayor Washington. This is Robert looking really good while he's singing. This is me looking really bad while I'm singing. And this is Steve Ordauer, whose father was Sid Ordauer. And Sid Ordauer had a television show for many years on Chicago called Gospel Jubilee Showcase, which if you were an African-American church-going kid on the South Side, you had to, your grandparents would wake you up and make you watch this show. It was kind of torture for a lot of people, but the library downtown has every episode um, and it's amazing, you know, the staple singers and uh, the soul stirs. It's a fantastic show from the, the 70s. Um, so I guess I'll just talk a little bit about being in choir with Robert. Like I said, he had, uh, he had this, uh, he didn't do well in school. He initially came to Kenwood to play basketball, but you can't play basketball if you don't have any grades. But in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s in Chicago, Every uh, principal in the public schools were these kind of Irish people that had been put in in like the late 50s or early 60s, and they just stayed for decades. And they could sort of do whatever they wanted in the school. So I guess Miss Yachner, who was our teacher, who was, had been there for 25 years since the school opened, and she was always drunk and never came out of the room, she apparently had a meeting with Mrs. McGlynn, our choir director, and who told her that Robert is going to be a professional singer, and if we kick him out of school, he's not going to be a professional singer. And even though he, you know, can't do school, we need to leave him in the school. And Ms. McGlynn was a really powerful woman. She had, um, uh, she was the niece of Thomas Dorsey, and Thomas Dorsey is the creator of gospel music. And pri prior to the 1930s, when he created gospel music, there were spirituals. And then there was, you know, blues music and R&B. But there were no, like, religious songs that kind of uh, uh, had hooks. You know, they wouldn't have a hook and they wouldn't be kind of driving. So he uh, wrote Precious Lord, Take My Hand, and a lot of things. So he was incredibly important. And his family was really a, a big deal. And Miss McGlynn uh, wrote some songs, but she's more famous for being a teacher. She was at Hyde Park High School and then Kenwood, and she had... Um, Herbie Hancock, she had Mandy Patinkin, she had um, uh, Chaka Khan, who we were not allowed to mention her name, something about her lifestyle, and 
You know, you couldn't say her, her, don't talk about her or her sister. You mentioned her name, Miss McGlynn would start yelling. You weren't allowed to talk about her. She had a lot of gospel singers. Uh, uh, Jonita Lattimore, who just did a big concert downtown this summer. So she actually produced, um, a, you know, there's not a lot of African-American gospel, I mean, uh, opera singers. And she produced a number of them that are still working. So she was really something. She was very scary. She had bizarre, fat ankles, you know, and she was... <laughs> And she would make you sing. It was like she, she, could, she could, I mean, I'm not a good singer. And she would get you up there, and she would, like, kind of grab your stomach and tell you you could sing a note, and then you would sing a note that you couldn't sing. I mean, she was really good, and she gave Robert a lot of uh, attention and really trained him. I mean, you know, he couldn't, he can't read, he can't read music, he can't do this, he can't do that, but he has done, you know, all kinds of things, and it, it probably helped that he had this woman who really believed in him and, and could teach opera, you know, and could teach all these things. So, as I said, there's not going to be a lot of um, real anecdotes because we weren't together that much. He was only in school for choir class for like a year and a few months. But he had this arrangement, and he was allowed to come back to school every year for the not only to sometimes hang out in choir, but he also was in the Christmas show every year, even though he had been, you know, expelled. He got, was expelled in 1984, but he was in the Christmas show 85, 86, 87. <laughs> and he had a signature song. He had this one signature song that everybody knew he was going to sing. I've never heard it anywhere else. I mean, it, you know, maybe it's famous, but I've never heard it anywhere else. It's a really good song, and it was his song, and it would be really exciting. And I imagine they were telling Miss McGlynn, he can't be in the show this year because he's not a student and he's been expelled, but every year they'd let him. And then one year, Miss McGlynn says uh, that I'm going to sing the song, which is absolutely ridiculous. I'm not a soloist. I'm not that good a singer. Uh, when we sang, uh, we once did uh, two shows a night, our choir, for uh, two weeks at the um, Andy Williams Christmas show, the late Andy Williams. And I, I was supposed to just, like, at, at some point they said, just move your mouth. Stop singing. You're ruining the Andy Williams Christmas show. <laughs> and, I, and I got mono for not sleeping for two weeks, and I didn't even get to sing. But that was okay. I, it was really exciting to be in the Andy Williams Christmas show. I learned a lot. But I also learned something from Robert, because when Miss McGlynn said, I'm going to get to sing the Christmas song, she said, okay, here's what we're going to do. You, uh, you and Robert go off into the next room, and Robert's going to teach you how to sing this song. Robert is going to train you. So probably, if it was twice, I'd be surprised. It was probably one session. We go into the guitar room just by ourselves, and Robert is going to teach me to sing this song. And basically, I'm, I'm almost positive we did not sing for a second in that room. We never went over the song. He never told me how to sing, and he never gave me any vocal cues or any tips. He did one thing. He had one bit of advice. I can't imagine how we took 40 minutes, like what we talked about. <laughs> it, like if, if, it was, if, if, if we did it twice, I'm baffled. But I'm pretty sure we only, it was only one time. And I, I don't know why it took 40 minutes, but he had one piece of advice that he told me was the most important advice. If you want to be a successful singer, there is one thing you have to do to be an important, you know, to, to really get over on stage and to be successful. There's one thing you have to do. And this is his advice. He said, if you want to be successful, if you want to do this right, if you want to deliver this song, you have to be like Bing Crosby. <laughs> so, 
So, you know, I, I asked, what, what do you mean to be by, like Bing Crosby? He said, look, the key to doing that, the key to being like Bing Crosby, the key to success is that you have to walk when you sing. <laughs> so I don't, whatever, uh, whatever his, I mean, he, he certainly had learned more than that over the years, but absolutely, when R. Kelly was 16, 17 years old, his belief was the key to singing. The key to success was walking when you were singing. And um, I guess to prove, and, and when the Christmas show came around that year, Robert did the song. I did not do it. <laughs> Robert did the song again. I've never been able to, I did not get to perform it, although I, 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 I did practice, and I did practice my walking. Um, Robert did the song for several more years. He continued to hang out in the Kenwood Choir. If um, the not proven in court uh, Sun-Times article by Jim DeRogatis is to be believed, he went to the Kenwood Choir to meet the young lady that he videotaped. Um, and uh, the, I, you know, I never, I, I try and give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I don't know what's true, but the one thing in, in uh, the report, you know, in the sometimes kind of uh, initial report on this uh, video that upset me more than anything was that he would go to the Kenwood Choir and he would tell the girls, you just have to drop out of school. You know, this is, you're wasting your time. You just have to drop out of school. So I hope that wasn't true, you know, but who knows. But he did keep going to Kenwood and got him in a little bit of trouble. Now, usually I don't do this, but uh, go ahead on, break him off with a little previews of the remix. Now, I'm not trying to be rude, but hey, pretty girl, I'm feeling you. The way you do the things you do reminds me of my Lexus cool. That's why I'm all up in your grill, trying to get you to a hotel. You must be a football coach, the way you got me playing the field. So, baby, give me that, and let me get you that. Running her hands through my fro, bouncing on 24. Why they say I'm ready? It's the remix to ignition, hot and fresh out the kitchen. We're gonna, this is going to come out as a podcast later. Um, and uh, our, our, next, our, our next presenter has uh, generously offered to answer questions that are tweeted to uh, what's your Twitter handle? J E N N Y B E N T O. Okay. And, uh, and she will uh, answer them up to 20 years in the future from now. So whenever you hear the podcast and you, t- you can tweet at that moment a question. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly, if you're in cash cap. Um, so anyway, um, so uh, if all you know about R. Kelly is just, you know, about that he was involved in a, a sex scandal and that, um, you know, Ignition Remix is the fucking motherfucking power jam of the century, then our goal here tonight is to tell you very much more. So, uh, and that's why we asked uh, uh, one of our favorite presenters, uh, uh, Jenny, to be here because um, Jenny is a, a, a really smart lady. She's a librarian. She's a, a taxonomist, right? Um, and she presents on all sorts of different kinds of topics uh, from precious moments to uh, the insane clown posse and juggalos. She's talked about juggalos and branding at um, South by Southwest as well as uh, on this uh, very stage. Um, back in 2010, maybe that was, um, and um, she's you know she she says a lot of smart stuff all the time. So you should go to her blog, which is at uh, jennyjenny.org, and uh, she has a great podcast um, with a gentleman named Paul that uh, you can find at selloutpodcast.com, where they talk about culture and pop culture and all kinds of interesting topics. So. Um, She's gonna she's gonna do the bulk of our presentation, so get comfortable. Be, feel free to get drinks while uh, while she's talking. The patio is still open, although maybe it's raining. But um, 
I'm going to hand it over to Jenny. Please help me welcome her by clapping. I had the original version of this today, but um, I changed a few slides, so I'm going to call it the remix. Because R. Kelly is so fond of the remix. So, um, as Jake said, uh, there's and Seth said, there's a, been a lot of recent interest in R. Kelly, not only because of his trial and because he's awesome and Ignition Remix is awesome, but because um, he wrote this this autobiography um, despite being illiterate. And um, <laughs> I'm not saying that in a mean way. <laughs> I would like to clarify that. Um, and there's been a few biographies of him. So I mean. I, you, you might not want to trust the, trust the autobiography of someone who the majority of their work is talking about how awesome they are in bed. Um, but, you know, there's a couple other th- resources I've used. You know, interviews with him, this awesome um, unauthorized biography, which is somewhere in the room, uh, which is awesome to read on the train, let me just point out. Um, <laughs> It's called the life. Of, your body's calling me the life and times of R, Robert R. Kelly. Music, love, sex, and money. The unauthorized biography. That's the whole title. And his children's biography, "I Can Fly: The R. Kelly Story," which came out in the middle of the trial. Interesting choice. <laughs> so we mentioned that he he says that he many times in his autobiography that he can't read or write, um, and so that might necessitate a ghostwriter. And David Ritz is the ghostwriter. That's a photo of him. Um, David Ritz is as famous as you can be as a ghostwriter. He's written basically every great soul or R&B um, autobiography. He's ghostwritten them. Uh, Ray Charles, Buddy Guy. I mean, he's, and he's so into it that he started going to church with these people and who he's writing autobiographies about. And he ended up converting um, from Judaism to some sort of evangelical Baptist religion. So, as I said, there might be a credibility issue with an autobiography, but what Ritz is telling you is that he tapes everything, and then he writes in their voice. So he's done Cornell West, he's done Buddy Guy, he gets in there, he listens to their tapes, and then writes something, and they always have final say. Um, but he's not going to build a monument to them. So he's not going to do something that's just uh, glorifying their life. So, at least we have that to say. However, he did say that with the Billie Holiday autobiography, which he did not write, um, sometimes an autobiography that's just a self-fulfilling testament to uh, your greatness um, is also awesome because it's, even though it's inaccurate, it's invaluable because it shows what that person thinks of life and what their view is. And I definitely think Sola Costa falls into that category. So um, if you heard our interview on Vocalo, you, you might have heard that there's a lot of dichotomies in, in R. Kelly's life, and I think this is why a lot of people find him really interesting. So he writes all these sex jams, but then he has all these gospel church music. You know, he grew up listening to gospel, singing gospel. Um, he's the first to tell you he's a mama's boy, but then he's also the first to tell you he's totally a thug. Um, He's a writer, but he's illiterate. Um, he's one of the best writers and the highest grossing writers of our time, but he's illiterate. Um, he's a musical genius, which he or many other people are glad to tell you, including, say, Pitchfork. Um, but a lot of his lyrics, I mean, come on. like uh, He rhymes closet with closet about eight times, in the, just the first trapped in the closet. So um, a great portion of his songs are about treating your lady right and not going, stepping out on her. But his life and his songs are also very pro-cheating. So, and he's pro-devotion, but also, eh, you know, you got to get some on the side, you're R. Kelly. 
Um, he time and time again talks about how he wasn't doing wrong, how he doesn't step out. But pretty much all of his songs are pleas of forgiveness, whether it's to the lady he's having sex with, the lady he's married to, or God. Um, and though they have adult themes, usually sex, um, a lot of them have really childish lyrics or have like childish references. Um, I think the easiest example for me here is no one who's actually has sec- had sex usually refers to someone's genitals as their crotch in a sexual situation. That's something like a fourth grader says. Um, or the, the lyric I tweeted the other day was, um, uh, I want to lick you in your private spot. That, that sounds like something a fifth grader would say. But any, any talk of R. Kelly has to start with his mother. Um, this is his mother, Joanne Kelly. Uh, R. Kelly will have nothing said negative about this lady. Um, she brought him up. He, his dad was not in the picture. Um, she loved music. She sang in both the church and um, at nightclubs where he, she took him to. Um, she emphasized how great he was at music, how he was going to be a star. There was always positivity coming from her. Um, she also took him to church where he sang as well, as Jake attested to the choir as well. And um, he talks about her... Um, the musical influences she introduced him to, and, you know, those are, you probably can't see this in this light, but um, Billie Holiday, uh, Diana Washington, um, Aretha, Frankie Lyman, um, the Jackson Five, he said she had, she had no prejudices when it came to music, so um, he got a real education, maybe not in Kenwood, but around his mom. Um, he also got a different kind of education at home. Uh, his mom is was he will admit was a drinker. Um, she had sort of an abusive relationship with her husband, Lucius, his stepfather. Um, keep in mi- that in mind when you watch Trapped in the Closet because Lucius is the pimp. Um, there's been some talk that his house growing up was a brothel. Um, he doesn't really ex- expressly talk about that in his version of the story, um, but he does say there were lots of women hanging around while his mom was at work, usually in states of undress, which she wouldn't have been okay with. Um, and they often uh, made him do sexual things. They um, made him take photos of them having sex with guys, um, and one of them, at least starting at the age of eight, phalated him uh, forcibly, and um, generally just there was a lot of really inappropriate sexual behavior around the house. Now, I'm no psychiatrist, but if you've listened to, like, one episode of Dr. Drew, you can see where this path leads, right? Um, He says, growing up in the hood, the number one rule was don't snitch, don't tell. Like, learning two plus two equals four. Um, So the idea that all these things were happening, and he didn't feel he could tell anyone. So he started keeping a lot of secrets. Um... There were times I had to get out of my house. There was just too much noise, screaming, arguing. There was too many people having sex. Um, A lot of people come from bad homes. I don't think there were just too many people having sex is usually an average uh, description of them. Um, And he was also, there was a guy around the neighborhood who also was molesting kids, um, and he told on them. And I think that's an interesting point. He didn't tell on the women who were molesting him or treating him inappropriately, though he knew they were inappropriate. But he did tell on the guy who tried. Um, And I think that comes up a lot in his music that, you know, ladies doing things are okay, but gay stuff, no homo. Um, He says, as a kid, he kept a lot of secrets. Some of them were terrible, some of them were beautiful, some were both. There were so many secrets stuffed into my imaginary box, I was running out of room. Again, 
you know, Dr. Drew time. Um, and I think Secrets are, first of all, the foundation of Trapped in the Closet, if not his other songs. It's all about doing stuff you don't want other people to know about. And because you're not telling other people, they're doing stuff that they're not telling you um, and cheating, etc. So he learned hiding your secrets. Um, two of his hits, you know, Trapped in the Closet and The Down Low, usually these are terms associated with being gay. I'm sure R. Kelly knows this, and I don't think R. Kelly is gay. I am not implying that. But it's interesting to me that he's using these terms that are traditionally kind of verboten in a hip-hop sense um, for sort of men and women hooking up outside of the proper channels. Um, obviously, at home, he's learning to hide his secrets. He has a lot of characters based on his family in, in Trapped in the Closet. This is Pimp Lucius. I mentioned his stepdad is named... Uh, Lucius. Um, and I think that leads to sort of the idea again that perhaps he grew up in a brothel. Um, also, um, Pimp Lucius stutters, as you'll see, and his, R. Kelly's uncle stuttered a lot, and he has a huge influence on R. Kelly's life. So the two major male figures in his life are combined into this character, Pimp Lucius. That's interesting. I think a lot of people ask, you know, when they see Trapped in the Closet, like, how did, how did this happen? Like, where... Where did someone come up with this? And that's sort of what I'm trying to give you an idea of, like, growing up in this situation, this is the obvious thing you're going to do, trapped in the closet. So R. Kelly loves his mom, as I said. His mom every day would take him to McDonald's. She didn't have money to make, buy them breakfast, but she would get herself coffee and, with, I think, two creams and six sugars. Um, and this, I like that he included the photo of McDonald's, like, because it's not going to, it's his McDonald's, you know. Um, <laughs> And uh, he would always drink from that spot uh, on the lipstick where his mom drank because he wanted to feel closer to her. Um, and he, in a different context, says that, you know, whenever his, he and his mom dr talked over tea, she would, he would remember how she left her lipstick on the teacup. And seeing that moved him for reasons I'm not even sure I understand. So when I'm out with a young lady chilling and drinking tea, if she's wearing lipstick and she leaves a print on the cup, I find myself falling in love with her, at least for the moment. So, yikes, yeah, right, someone said yikes. Uh, I, it's not, I'm, I, I don't feel I'm being heavy-handed here. I mean, I think, uh, clearly his mother was his protector in this situation, and she is a religious woman, and she really did stand behind him, and she really supported him, and clearly um, that figure of a religious woman is very strong in his songs, the woman who will, not, who will uh, rebuff advances, um, and in general, his first wife, the reason he fell in love with her, um, was her religiousness. So, Because of this, McDonald's is R. Kelly's safe space. Um, he's obsessed with McDonald's in a way that's crazy. If you would like to meet R. Kelly, I suggest hanging out in a McDonald's. Um, McDonald's has played a pivotal role in R. Kelly's life. First, he started as a street performer um, after he dropped out of high school. And he performed in an L station beneath uh, McDonald's. I'm guessing Chicago Avenue on the red line. I know it's a red line stop, so I don't know. He said it's downtown. Um, and he saw a lot of people bringing McDonald's bags, so he decided to write songs about McDonald's to make them happy. Um, he, when he feels disrespected, he goes to McDonald's. He was doing a talk show. He felt they weren't going to give him an interview, so he left. The he just left in the middle, before he even did his song, and went to McDonald's. Um, when he was a kid growing up, he went to Olympia Fields, and he saw this amazing, what he describes as a log cabin mansion. And he said, this is the greatest house in the world. And his friend said, oh, the guy who owns like eight McDonald's franchises lives there. And he said, 
I'm going to live in this house. And his, and his friend was like, yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're all going to be rich and you're going to get a mansion. And he's like, no, no, this is the house. And he eventually bought the house. The house, I'll show you photos of later, is, is where, where he lives. Uh, and it's the McDonald's house. He calls it the McDonald's house. Um, after being acquitted, he said, I forgave everybody. I just want to get back to my normal life. And they asked, where do you want to go now? And he said, McDonald's. I've got to get a double cheeseburger and fries. Um, <laughs> uh, he was, he was doing concerts with Jay-Z, and he was really frustrated by them. He felt Jay-Z was, you know, he had a tiff with Jay-Z. So he left in the middle and went to a McDonald's. He just walked off stage and went to a McDonald's and worked the drive-thru for three hours. It's actually, this is from the smoking gun. It's in the, it's in the report. It's part of, like, Jay-Z's suing the legal papers. Um, while his children are born. So R. Kelly and God had a talk. And that's how he describes it. And God has told him that you should not be there during the birth of your children because, ew, vaginas. So um, he's just not cool with seeing things down there. That's what he says. I'm not, you know, it's not my assumption. Um, so he hung out at the rock and roll McDonald's while all three of his children were born. He didn't even stay in a hospital. He went and ordered a coffee with two, two creamers and six sugars. So obviously McDonald's is his mom to him. It's his place of comfort. Um, Jake talked about Miss McClinn. He calls her a second mother. Um, it, there are these three women who I feel like taught R. Kelly something in his childhood that really affects his music. Obviously, Miss McClinn taught him everything. He taught him gospel music, opera music, uh, really rallied behind him. Um, but he tells this story in the book about how how loving his mother was that she was super jealous of Miss McClinn and didn't want him to hang out with her. And this is a woman who's championing her son's career, and she's also saying, oh, this, only per- this person who can get him there, I don't want you to hang out with him. And R. Kelly interprets this as love. He says, you know, this jealousy was, ex- you know, it was my mom proving that she wanted to be with me and I was hers. And so I think that jealousy, that cheating, that clearly shows up all over his music. Um, when he was a really young kid, he was about five, he had a girlfriend named Lulu, and they had a playhouse, and he describes it as puppy love, but he also describes it as she's the kind of person, and it was the kind of relationship that um, people who get married 20 years later say, you know, we just knew when we were five. And uh, he watches her die in a river, and he feels it's his fault. Um, and I think that sort of idea that he's always trying to get back to that childhood relationship that, like, he could have prevented, that sort of love that you had, that puppy love you have at five. I think that really explains a lot of those um, metaphors he uses and sort of a lot of the other childish stuff in his life. We'll talk about it a little bit later. And then there's Chance. Chance and he were, were uh, girlfriend and boyfriend in the teen years, and he thought he knew everything about sex. That's what he says. Um, and then he was, they were having sex, and he saw blood. And he thought... She had injured him. He had injured her. He didn't know what happened. So he, he freaks out, and he leaves, and he goes to his sister, which I'd love to see that sort of, like, did he put on pants? What happened? Um, and she explains, you know, this girl's got her period, and he doesn't have sex again for three to four years at, like, 14. Like, what? So, again, I mean, I think that's another one of those, like, ad- adult women icky vaginas, which is ironic if you're, if you're the number one singer of sex jams in the last 30 years, right? So um, after dropping out of high school, he starts, you know, busking on the street, and then 
um, he becomes a stripper. And he treats this in the book really, like, casually. Like, oh, yeah, I just became a stripper at, like, 18, and, you know, whatever. And then I just stopped because this pimp was telling me that, like, I was stepping on his business and, you know, whatever. And, like, this never comes back, although he does have a song stripped for you, which is sort of based on it. And my fa- I, this is only included because he's stripped as, as Darth Vader. Which is awesome. So he, there's, there's a lot of people trying to rally around his career. He goes on some TV shows. He tries to get a record deal. It falls through. He has a band. That doesn't really work out. And then he, he gets another band together, and he, they do a lot of uh, coordin- coordinated dancing that he does. And uh, they're a new Jack Swing band for all intents and pers- purposes. You remember that? In 92? New Jack Swing. So all these people are telling him that, like, New Jack Swing's the thing. You have to have a New Jack Swing band. So though he has this soul and R&B background, he's like, all right, you know, it's the thing. So they have this band. They break up after um, one album. And on tour, when they're in the band, he's like, I'm not going to do a a group anymore. This is too much drama. I want to do all the stuff. You know, I think a lot of people compare him to Prince in that way and other ways as well, but that idea that, like, he wants control of these things. He's this musical genius who has to control all these things. So on tour, he develops this song called 12 Play, which is, you know, four play times three. <laughs> he, got, he got the math somewhere, Jake. He, you know? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so it becomes this huge hit, and he is now obsessed with 12 Play. Three, at least three of his albums, and maybe another one soon, will be named after 12 Play. Um, it, it makes him very big. He starts to be a producer of other people, including Aaliyah. And her hit song, Age Ain't Nothing But a Number. Wow, that's, in retrospect, a really interesting song title. I like that he's skulking in the background. Like, um, So <laughs> he knows Aaliyah's uncle, and he produces the, her song, and, and this leads to a production career. And in his book especially, like he'll, he'll say outright, I don't write, I don't read, I'm, I'm a genius at producing and writing songs for other people. So I think he really thinks that his genius lies there, and a lot of people agree. He ends up producing a ton of people. Um, they get married when she's 15. It's all a misunderstanding. He won't talk about it now that she's dead, though. They have a lot in common, they said. A 27-year-old man and her have a ton in common. So maybe they're just friends. I don't know. So after all these sex jams, he, in 95, he, he comes out with R. Kelly, which is pretty much all a uh, really religious-inspired album, which all these um, critics are really excited about because they're like, oh, he left all this like, misogynist stuff behind. Thank God. And then a lot of his fans don't like because they're like, what happened to the sex jams? So um, <laughs> in the meantime, he does I Believe I Can Fly, which d- d- who remembered that was from Space Jam? <laughs> okay, yeah, so this is great for him because he loves cartoons and he loves Looney Tunes. He ends up opening a Looney Tunes bar. He paints Looney Tunes on all the walls in his house. Um, on his um, basketball court, he has them in the background as his audience. Um, and it ends up coming out on R, which is a double album. It's one of the only that he's had other people help produce. And it's, to this day, his best-selling album. Um, TP2. So he puts out, well, I'm sorry, tp2.com, Seth would like me to announce, which I went to that website today and it's not taken. So I really think you should go out and get that. Um, Why? I don't understand. Um, Space Jam still has a website. Uh, So, um, so so obviously this is, again, he goes back to the sex jams, critics, a little sad. Um, 
And, you know, he's always wanted to do an album with a rapper, and he talked to Tupac about it, he talked to Biggie about it. Wow, that record's not really good. Um, so he hangs out with Jay-Z, and they decide to do, they are going to do a powerhouse album together. And they get really behind it, and the week before it's supposed to come, or a couple weeks before it's supposed to come out, um, it both gets leaked, and, he, and R. Kelly is involved in this sex scandal um, in 2002. So Jay-Z is no longer very jazzed about this whole situation, and also, so this album is like one of the worst selling that they've ever had, um, obviously. Um, but it leads to uh, it leads to a tour, which um, for a while Jay Z and R Kelly are like bros. But then you know their egos sort of get in the way, and they have a big giant bromance break- breakup that's very public, and ends at the McDonald's. Um, in 2003, he puts out the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, it's a great it's a great one. Um, and then 2004, a double album again, and this is all, so Chocolate Factory, Sex Jams, again. Um, Happy People, and this one, and You Save Me, is step music and gospel. Um, so again, people say it's sort of a return, and I think this is the start of, if you look at how he's dressed in the cover art, it's sort of um, R. Kelly, what he calls his musical time machine. And he wants to go back in time and recreate these eras of music that he had as a child. Um, TP3. So these are all TP is 12 play if you have not guessed that. Um, yeah, so TP2.com and TP3 is not. Where was the first load? I don't understand. So, oh, wait, I know. Sorry, that was unintentional. That was totally unintentional. Um, so, uh, so this period, 2002 to 2008, is, is when he's on trial and his, his supporters and his you know, cadre of people are like, stop putting out sex jams for the love of God. You're accused of a sex crime. And he keeps putting them out. Like, for a while, he was just putting out gospel songs, and now he's just putting out album after album of sex jams. Um, a double up, untitled. So then he starts to get um, a lot more production credits, and he, gets, he wins this contest to sing at the World Cup, and he gets to go to Africa, which is his lifelong dream. He has an Africa concept album that they won't let him release and he loves Africa he gets he gets to go there it's really awesome and it changes his life and so he goes back to ballads for a while he's, he puts out epic which is a Chicago shout out um, and it's it's all of his ballads plus a few new ones um, and now he's gone back to sort of an old-timey thing so he, uh, when he, on, on one of his albums, he did a song for Ali, and it was uh, the greatest of all time. And he, he and Ali started hanging out, and um, Ali was like, I love Sam Cooke, and you remind me of him. So R. Kelly, for his Christmas party, just did Sam Cooke. Like, he dressed up as Sam Cooke, and he, did, like, he made everyone come in that period's clothing. And he just did, like, a Sam Cooke show. And so now, it's sort of, this is his new, like, jam, I guess. Um, so he's doing these, like, love songs, these slow love songs. Um, this is his brand new album. And I mean, even from the styling, I think you can tell he's hearkening back to that era. And they're they're sex jams, but they're more they're they're your older thinking man sex jam. They're not quite as I like the crotch on you. Um, but of course, like a lot of his hits, I mean, "You Are Not Alone" by Michael Jackson is by him. Yeah, the Batman and Robin soundtrack, Celine Dion, which um, you know Whitney Houston, the Life soundtrack with Wyclef Jean. Um, so he's written all these things for other people, a lot of things that people don't even know, and he was able to do that during the trial, and people wouldn't know. So, um, And he's among the best-selling artists of all time. I don't know if you can see this. He's, he's right between Britney Spears and Phil Collins. 
but above Dave Matthews Band, which I was pretty psyched about, yeah. Yeah, I feel bad for John Denver. Um, but he has some issues, as we could tell. This is him during his Africa phase. He decorated the whole studio. Um, but these issues are kind of like what drives his music and why he talks about these subjects. Um, and we talked a little bit about that already, but because of his upbringing... R. Kelly just wants people to like him. He will do whatever you want to, for you to like him. He's so psyched about people liking him. And he knows this. Like, he's very outward about it. I'm at my best when I'm wanted and no good when I'm not. That's my kryptonite when I'm not wanted. I love going where I'm celebrated, not just tolerated. <laughs> so, I mean, he kind of likes children's media. And I'm not saying this in, a, in terms of the trial. I think... Again, I'm going to go with the Dr. Drew psychological analysis. It seems like a lot of this stuff kind of got stuck in that period when he was being molested, his, the love of his life died. Um, a lot of the stuff that brings him enjoyment is really from that period. Um, he'll, I mean, basketball, of course. He grew up playing basketball. But the, the, the only things he seems to really like, and a lot of, a, a lot of um, articles when he was becoming famous was like, you know, he really doesn't spend his money. He just has like a one-bedroom apartment. Because like a lot of the things that make him really happy seem to be these things that are like really easily accessible because they're aimed at children. So this is his children's book, which is somewhere around here. Um, he loved Batman. He made his pool Batman-themed before they asked him to be in Batman. And I said earlier, he drew some, uh, or he paints these uh, audiences of Looney Tunes characters all over his home. Um, he's, this is him being super psyched that he gets to work on Batman in the children's book. <laughs> the Chocolate Factory. It's a reference to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory about, you know, your dream vac vacation as a child to the best place ever. Um, he calls his, uh, his recording studio the Chocolate Factory. It's in his log cabin in his home. Um, he... The log cabin, there's two exactly the same rooms in his home called the log cabin. Um, you might notice them from his porn video. He takes a lot, he takes a lot of um, photos in it. He takes like uh, album cover and um, like magazine interview photos in it. And so when he was trying to say that it wasn't him on the video, I think that's really amazing because he picked literally the most distinctive room in the, in the world and he has two of them. Uh, so I think that's awesome. Um, that's an awesome defense. Um, and here's where I share a personal story as well. No, not personally with R. Kelly specifically. Um, R. Kelly and I used to live in the same hood, you know, because he was at 1010 West Grace, right around Belmont and Clark. And there was this very small dollhouse store called Think Small by Rose. Someone, did someone just woo a, a, a dollhouse store? Awesome. Yeah, it was so, it was so fucking awesome. And uh, I went in there one day because it's in my neighborhood and I've never been with some friends. And I talked to the guy who owned it and he showed me all their dollhouses and stuff. And it was very cool. And he, he brought out this photo album and he said, hey, have you ever heard of R. Kelly? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I've heard of R. Kelly. He really did not think I had heard about R. Kelly. And this was three years ago. So, um, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm from here and, you know, R. Kelly. Um, so he's like, oh, we did a dollhouse for him. And I was like, oh, yeah, for his kids. And he's like, no, no. For R. Kelly. And I was like, okay, whatever. And this guy was very, like, he wasn't like, this weird. Um, and he showed it to me, and it's this house. Um, he did a dollhouse of his own house, including the log cabin room. And he, this guy specifically was like, oh, man, the log cabin room. We had to talk about it forever, and it had to be just specifications. 
uh, log cabins, very big thing, and it had a Jeep, a big Jeep in the driveway, um, which he's notorious for liking. So I, he bought himself a dollhouse at like 40. It's weird. Um, and I, I'm not judging. I think that's like, I think that's something that like clearly the things that make him happy are the things that he didn't get in his childhood. Um, so what's the moral of this story? This is from the book, his uh, child book. God is good. Believe in yourself. Follow your dreams. You can be anything you want. You can fly. By the way, R. Kelly does not like to fly. Ironically, he hates flying. Um, <laughs> no, it's just true. Um, and he, he says, there are two sides to us all. Uh, everybody's struggling with something. Nobody's perfect. And I think if there's anything that the story is, I mean, if you look at Trapped in the Closet, that's, that's totally the story. It's, you know, you're a pastor by day, but at night, you're screwing a dude. Sorry, these are spoilers if you haven't seen Trapped in the Closet. Um, sorry. I'll keep it on the down low. Um, <laughs> um, so, or, you know, um, you could be the greatest, most religious person, but, you know, we're all struggling with something. And a lot of stars, you know, they have sad childhoods and they feed that with drugs or alcohol. And I think it's pretty clear what R. Kelly's vice is, um, whether the age, age notwithstanding, I think his whole career is based on filling the thing that destroys him. It's sex jams. And, um, <laughs> it's, it's, and so all of his stories tend toward people who are great being destroyed by this like sexual infidelity they had and trying to prove that there's you know, two sides to all of us. Um, all of us might be in church, but we all are having dirty sex behind closed doors. You know, he grew up with pimping on one hand, but also with going to church every weekend. Um, and you know, he deals with cheating in his own life and sees it all around him, but he also feels like devotion is the, you know, devotion to his mother especially was the only thing that made any difference in his life. Um, so the, these are like the dichotomies again that you know he sort of grew up with, and he presents in these, in these songs and in Trapped in the Closet, and also band band outfits. So, um, I I urge you to look at this stuff when you're watching Trapped in the Closet because uh, I mean when I when I took a look at this, you're like, oh, R. Kelly, he sings funny songs about like sex planets and zoos and animals having sex. But then on the other hand, you're like, whoa, he's confronting a lot of demons. Um, <laughs> it doesn't make you laugh at him anymore, but it is sort of interesting that a person could get this far, again, being illiterate, um, having a really hard childhood, and just make a jillion dollars off of it in a way that's not exploitative, but is actually like getting through it. So enjoy Trapped in the Closet. Hey there, you've reached the halfway point of Jenny and Paul Sellout. Uh, we're now in episode 12, and this one's all about R. Kelly. You've been listening to audio from Homeroom 101, all about R. Kelly, which happened at the Hungry Brain in Chicago in October of 2012. Uh, my co-host, Jenny Benevento, who, who's here with me, was one of the speakers we've just heard. And, uh, and Jenny, I wanted you to fill in a couple details here. Because uh, I think you could take for granted that your audience there at the Hungry Brain knows a bit more about R. Kelly, and anyone who would show up would know more of his background. But you you made mention to, and there were references to a trial. Sure. Um. Yeah. I, I think also in Chicago, it was kind of an unavoidable thing to that to see on the news. 
Um, R. Kelly was, ha- I mean, has been involved in several legal um, situations where he's been accused of doing s- any number of sexual things from taking photos to just uh, seeing underage girls to actually having sex with underage girls. Um, and uh, the first few times it happened, he sort of, they settled out of court um, and he sort of paid that away. So those were uh, <laughs> yeah. civil trials. Um, yes. And then recently, the more recently, there was sort of a seven-year-long process where um, one of his protégés, Sparkle, her niece, um, she would bring her niece around R. Kelly, and, you know, they were friends, and uh, it turns out there's a video of him in his house in an extremely distinctive room um, having sex with her. And that video, I mean, I would suggest you don't watch, but is available on the internet and is child pornography. So don't, don't download it. Um, but I, and he has just, an, I mean, his other pretty famous uh, relationship experiences with Aaliyah, who was 15 at the time, and he got in trouble for that as well. So it's sort of this pattern. Um, but the most recent trial, uh, it took about seven years. He, um, he said a lot of it was because, you know, he had paid off these people. And once you pay off someone once, you sort of have this, um, you're marked as a person who will try and get rid of this problem. Except that this, you know, I think the the, the second trial was a criminal trial. Right. Well, and I think that having, having a video was part of the issue there. <laughs> so although it, it ended up not being admissible, which is sort of part of the reason why, you know, he was not found guilty. He was, he was found innocent. So, Well, he was found not guilty. Yes, no one is ever true. found it's innocent true, in true. a court of law. Um, but I think the other point to make here is the girl in the video refused to uh, testify, testify against him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so this was a, this was a fairly uh, spectacular trial, you know, on, on, in some ways for, for Chicago on the order of like OJ. Yeah. And I mean, he even claims that it's not him in the video, which is just a crazy thing, um, that it's weird and doctored, which the FBI clearly stated it wasn't. So there's a lot of stuff that, I mean, it would be one thing to be a rock star and be like, yeah, I did this sexual dalliance, but, you know, she's not against it. Yeah, she was underage, but, you know, uh, no one had a bad time. But that was not the route he took. It was, that's not me. There's mm-hmm. no video. That video is not true. And so he uh, maybe, so he's free. He's, he's, he's free. He's found not guilty, but it, definitely that cloud hangs over him, I think, in a lot of people's minds. Yeah, I mean, I think even if you look at reviews online of his stuff, um, a lot of people say, you know, I won't ever buy anything by him again. But for the most part, it really hasn't hurt him financially or professionally yeah all right the many complex sides of r kelly uh, but we'll have to tell you of course here at the half point that uh you can go to our website to learn more we have show notes and jenny will uh give you many more reference points to learn more about the life of r kelly go to selloutpodcast.com and uh go to our facebook page we're up to over 70 uh, likes now Woo-hoo. we could use a few more tell your friends to like us because because you're supposed to. <laughs> and if you like us, then your friends will see that on your feed. Well, that's and then right. maybe they'll like us. Exactly. Too. So it's facebook.com yes. slash. Are we, what are we selling? Podcast? Yes. <laughs> I should know this. Yeah. By now. It's it actually on your computer right now. It's on my you. computer right behind me. Sell out podcast. <laughs> facebook.com sell out podcast. And of course, we've been asking people to go to iTunes and uh, rate us, give us some stars. Uh, and it's even better if you uh, write a review. 
uh, because that seems to work in the magic uh, Jobsian universe to push you towards the top of uh, search results when people are looking for new podcasts to listen to. Like R. Kelly, we just want people to like us. We just want people to like us here at uh, Jenny and Paul Sellout. Now we'll go back and learn more about R. Kelly. Now the midget begins to wake up because he fainted from all the madness. See three guns pointed around the room He stands and says, I have nothing to do with this And I said, hold up, you look familiar Do I know you from somewhere? And he said, man, I get around You might know my face from here, there Then James says, take a good look Cause you might not ever see his face again Twan says, man, what the hell is that smell? Somebody done broke wind And then Bridget starts crying while she's looking around I said I'm sure we can work this out We're going to focus on that piece of work trapped in the closet. It's like it's I you know I think we can all agree that there's no, nothing else like it in terms of things that we've seen. And um so uh what we're going to do is we're going to have um someone who worked on the set just talk a little bit about what her experiences and what she saw and what it was like. And then we're going to have a uh, a writer and musician talk a little bit about uh, his thoughts on the work, and then we're going to watch it. Um, so um, Christy Lamaster is one of the greatest people in Chicago. Um, she's a um, filmmaker, she's a sculptor and artist, but she's you know more than anything else is sort of a community builder. Um, she does really great work at this space called the Nightingale on Milwaukee, uh, where she shows the best of sort of local cinema and micro cinema and, and um, things that you can't find anywhere else. And she's been doing it for years. And um, if you haven't been there, you really owe yourself a trip down there. It's a real treat. Um, she has a screening this Friday, and I already forgot the title, Feminine Recall, and it, and it uh, features work by um, all women who are um, involved in activism of some kind. And... Um, and, and I've been to so many screenings there, and I've never um, regretted a single one. They've all been a real treat. So um, she doesn't know exactly when it was or what episode it is. I think it's between 19 and 21. We've nailed it down. So it's going to be later that we'll see this. But um, she was on the set of Trapped in the Closet as a craft service worker, and she's going to um, tell you about it now. So please give a warm welcome to Chrissy Lamaster. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Seth. So, hi, I'm Christy, um, and I somehow found myself working craft services for Trapped in the Closet. Um, a friend who was a regular PA called me. She had to go out of town, and she was like, can you please, please fill in for me? This gig gets really important. She never mentioned this is R. Kelly. This is trapped in the closet. Um, she just told me to go to uh, get picked up by a woman she was working with to drive to a warehouse near Midway. Um, and when I walked in, it was a bustle. And craft services is this really strange thing to do um, on a film shoot because you're not on set very much, but everybody comes through because everybody wants gummy bears. <laughs> right. Um, so I sort of saw everybody throughout the course of the day and um, a couple of days, and uh, including R. Kelly's daughter and R. Kelly himself. And I'm just going to tell you guys like some things of note that happened that were funny or interesting um, to me. So R. Kelly had a daughter, and she had um, entourage. Uh, and R. Kelly's daughter was hilarious and totally fun to hang out with, and she was on a pomegranate fetish, which meant that like I had to 
pound out pomegranate seeds for her probably like seven times over the course of the two days. And so, but it takes a long time. And so I would be pounding out pomegranates and she would be sitting waiting and we would talk. And I said, hey, what's your favorite movie? And she said, trapped in the closet. She's like 10. <laughs> and I was like, have you really seen Trapped in the Closet? And she's like, no, my favorite movie is Dreamgirls. And Dreamgirls was not out yet. <laughs> so I was like, that's cool. <laughs> so we sang some Dreamgirls songs together. And she had like these really well-dressed, like really put-together women. That One was her tutor. One was like sort of a, a babysitter of some kind. And they would come in and we would all sing Dreamgirls together. And um I shouldn't sing Dream Girls ever, but they were nice about it. Um, and so that happened. And then at one point, when the shoot started, we all went on to set. And set is this like super hectic place. There's like all these cameras. There's all these people walking around. And all of a sudden, R. Kelly stands on a chair, and everybody gets really quiet. And he says this really um, poignant and sort of long prayer over the whole shoot. And I'm thinking. We're praying over trapped in the closet. Um, and I, again, had walked in sort of blind. I didn't really know what was going on. Um, but there are, like, all these large Italian men. And they are on set, and they're in costume. Um, and if you think it's weird to watch R. Kelly's voice come out of people that aren't R. Kelly <laughs> on the video, <laughs> you should see it live. Um, it's amazing. So the song is just playing constantly. It's, just, it's, it's like for hours at a time. Um, it's like you're humming it when you don't know you're humming it. It's just, it's pervasive. Um, so R. Kelly really likes turkey burgers. And so our main mode of communication became about turkey burgers. And um, I brought it, he requested a turkey burger. He likes them a certain way. I like grilled it up. I brought it out to set. And I don't typically work craft services, so I didn't know that you're supposed to cover everything you bring on to set because things could fall. And this um, producer PA person just like reams me a new one for bringing the turkey burger to R. Kelly without a cover. And R. Kelly comes like walking from across the set. And he's like, no, 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 no. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And he looks at me. And he puts his hand on the chest of the man that's, like, tearing me a new one. And he's like, you make a damn fine turkey burger. <laughs> and I was like, thank you, Mr. Kelly. And I, <laughs> and I made, like, ten of those. The man ate, ate a turkey burger, like, every two hours. Just, like, you could set a clock by it. And, uh... And that was great, you know, and he was really complimentary about them. And uh, at the end of the shoot, he again said, you make a damn fine turkey burger, and my daughter thinks you're funny. Uh, she doesn't want you to sing anymore. <laughs> and that's fair. Uh, Dream Girls is not in my octave, uh, any of it. Uh, so that happened. Um, yeah, I mean, so those those are my basic experiences. Um, there's a few things of note, though, that like I find like pretty complicated, and I don't quite know exactly how to talk about. But like, the crew, and I've been on a, a couple of film sets, and um, they're almost predominantly white. And in this situation, the crew is almost all white, and the producer, some of the producers, and R. Kelly, and a few of the actors are African American, but everybody else is white, and it's this like strange thing, you know, that happens. 
I don't quite know how to talk about it. And I also teach media theory at Columbia College, and um, I talk, I teach Trapped in the Closet um, on a day that has a lecture entitled um, Irony, Parody, Satire, Sarcasm, Snark, and Camp. Um, and Trapped in the Closet is always like on the day where um, that happens. And I always use Trapped in the Closet to say, uh, can irony be an unintentional? So we're going to talk about um, Trapped in the Closet just as a work of art for a moment because it's, you know, um, that's what it was made as. And uh, R. Kelly, again, I encourage you to read Solar Coaster. The things that R. Kelly says about Trapped in the Closet and writing Trapped in the Closet in the book are really fascinating. And he sort of talks about just like, you know, the question, Jake, that you had about the improvisation, like, he talks about the writing process of it as being kind of improvisational, like based a lot on rhyme. So he's like, I had this idea for a character named Bridget and then I knew right away there had to be a midget in, in it. Like, because it rhymed. So like, so like he says, he describes like following this, the rhymes to find the story and things like that. Um, well, we might find that out. Um, so, um, this next fellow, uh, Edward Krauss, he's a, an accomplished musician, an accomplished film writer. Uh, you can read his writing in uh, publications like The Village Voice and I think Film Comment and SF uh, Bay Guardian. Uh, you can see him playing music around town in bands like um, Advanced Bass and The Sometimes Family and Thomas Cumberford and The Reels. Um, and he's a big fan of R. Kelly uh, musically, and then he's also um, well-versed in, in film, and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, this as a... Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you um, take it away, Ed. And, and, uh, so, and then after this, we'll... Don't look, those are, those are, I can't find where to play press. Wait, just move a little bit, and then we'll press play, and then everything will be okay. I'm going to explain what, what's happening right now. I'm not actually lecturing. These are the voices of certain historical figures. Uh, I love the straight lectures. I love Jenny's and Jake's and Christy's presentations. This is more of a fantasia, if you will. Um, variation on the theme. So, yes. Uh, as much as, like, maybe Trapped in the Closet is a ventriloquial work of art, this is kind of a ventriloquial lecture. I'd like to thank Mairead Case and Ray Vanek for giving me the boldness to try something that may completely like tank like this. So here we go. We got it? All right. It's four in the morning and Kel's cell phone sounds like screaming. He looks down at the display and it says, our wags. He thinks for sure that it must be the sad foster home kid from the wire. So he sits up in silk sheets of a high thread count, lights up a stogie, says, what up, dog? Voice on the line says, mine hair. And Kelly said, whose hair? I just got mine braided. Ooh, next slide. And the voice again says, mine hair. And Kel says, you mean like a rabbit? Hair? And suddenly Kells realizes two things. One, the voice just said, my man in German. And two, that he's dreaming and he can understand German. Fire away, cuz, Kells says to him in German. The voice says, mein Herr, I've come to you from a hundred years in the past, and I'm about to holler at you about size. Kells says, well, I am black, handsome, rich, and blessed. He says, no, not that kind of size. Wagner says, still in German. Oh, sorry. 
I've seen what you're doing with R&B, hip-hop, opera, radical narration, outlandish gesture, and I'm feeling it, yo. Your art multiplies the priorities of a Viennese play about venereal disease with an early New Jack Swing classic, a.k.a. Rumors. Kel says, is that the tip you're on? Suddenly this dude enters the room with a fly-ass hat on, looking like he's wearing pajamas. Wagner says, for real, I think trapped in the closet is your Gesamtkunstwerk. <laughs> Kel says, fuck that. Wagner says, you know what that is, right? Uh-oh. I didn't adjust the font. Kel says, sure. <laughs> but can I ask you why? Wagner pushes his Kango back and says, mostly it's embedded in your crazy sense of scale. You've always had it. From that Hype Williams baby joint that quoted Citizen Kane. It's like when my ring cycle starts with a horny dwarf renouncing love and stealing the gold to make the ring after three mermaids don't fuck him, right? Little is the fuse for your ambition. How you set it off, your Gesamtkunstwerk. People never expect the midget. Kel says, I remember that opera, but I don't remember why I do. And Wagner says, shit right you do. In your dreams and awake, you tap into a style that I started. When you wake up, you'll be saying, Gesamtkunstwerk. It fits you like a spotless beige suit and tight-ass braids. A Gesamtkunstwerk combines as many of their arts as you can in order to purify all of them. So it's not like putting a bunch of parts together, Frankenstein style, like putting all the arts together, because that just sounds crazy. And Wagner says, it is crazy. No, it's about creating unity and as seamless a package that you can and keeping the audience guessing. And Kel says, the package, I know. The only thing that... Audience knows and trapped in the closet is the package is big, destructive, and powerful. And Wagner says, same with the ring and the ring cycle. Gods want it, midgets want it, giants want it, country boys too. Kel says, the work itself starts to exert the same power as its symbols, which it really just stands in. Once shit starts to get crazy, people want to know the rest of it. It's like, how do you make people put their asses down and watch a damn 15-hour opera, Wagner? And Wagner says, same as you do intoxicates them with the shit that they shouldn't be put together but that works. Spooky cereal, soap operas, film noir, cartoon logic, but most of all, a seductive groove. And Wagner was really tweaking now. <laughs> Sex and music, one comes into the other. Sex sells the music. Tristan and Isolde. <laughs> Giants taking away a god's sister-in-law as payment for a castle. Brother and sister humping each other. Now you speak my language, Kel says. Wagner says, speaking, I invented your language, motherfucker. It's like that old Albert Brooks joke about how the first dress rehearsal of Bolero, the viola section immediately began masturbating at the sound of it. You can't resist. Believe. <laughs> then a voice comes from the closet. And now comes this nearly bald cat. And Kes, Kels says, who the fuck is this? And Wagner says, Adorno, not your ass again. And Adorno says, thought you'd get away, bitch? Casting a magic spell again? I see. Deny the culture of commodity. And Kels says... <laughs> You mean that word balloon? Adorno shoots his mouth off again like a moth eating a black hole in a pair of tweed pants. <laughs> People can pause the movie and read all that shit later. For now, peep this. The Gesamtkunstwerk solves the riddle of the phantasmagoria. In your closet, as in Wagner's ring, exteriority is prized above all and the motivation remain heroic and buried. And now Adorno's really tweaking. He starts squinting and shaking. Adorno says violence is attenuated in the civilized man and returns with the old explicitness only in dreams and madness. Even if you take almost 25 years to create a goddamn 15-hour opera, it's all to experience a sentimental aesthetic, a primordial bluntness. Adorno steps up to Wagner and says to Wagner, you know what? You died before you saw the real fruits of your art. Your music created the real total work of art of the 20th century, namely cinema. You also created the urge that merged the splurge of all that. You are that baby's daddy. Cinema. Wagner bugs out and says, 
I am not. Adorno says, everybody thinks you're the Hitler baby's daddy, too. Carol's backs up and says, oh, no, you didn't. Wagner says, fuck you, the kid is not my son. Adorno says, you're right. It's not as pat as all that, but music is emotionally diverse as you can also be adapted as a cultural fetish object for war or love, atrocity or affection. Kel says, damn right. Wags, our wags, couldn't control whether Hitler or Chuck Jones or anybody else used his music to affect people, just as I can't control whether people read Sylvester or Chuck or Rufus as an underlying gay confession or just a cat on the prowl. You heard Sylvester wags, right? Sang like a motherfucker. Now Kel starts to scratch his head and looks at Wagner and said, that's why I first heard you wags. You wrote the music for that Kill the Rabbit cartoon. You saw Space Jam, right? Wagner says, I think so. Kel says, no, go to the 1996 website. It's still up. <laughs> Wagner says, that did not fit with my original program. I detest that people think I just wrote songs rather than a cycle and an opera and a total work of art. Wagner unshrivels up his shriveled face. One thing I envy about you, Kells, is how entrapped in the closet you're able to narrate your own narration exerting that extra squirt of authorship in the commentary. That is mainly where your true art lies. You can see that's Kelly narrating himself, telling you to pause the movie. Kel says, well, trapped in the closet is all me, made with my hands and my feet and my loins and my heart. No musical hooks necessarily, all story, nothing but surprises. And Wagner says, one more thing. I'm here to give you the reward for your art. Oh, God. Wagner takes out a spear and says, it is upon this sphere, the one that slew Siegfried, that the law of the Gesamtkunstwerk is written. And now your ass is grass. Kelly says, shit. Kels takes out his Beretta. Wagner says, yeah. <laughs> Adorno says, Achtung. You know you're both failures. The Gesamtkunstwerk can never, never fully cover up the means of its production. You're both deluding yourselves. An extended atonal cord hangs in the air. Adorno closes his eyes and pictures his old teacher, Schoenberg. Someone says, someone, either Wagner or Kells, says, theory beats practice, bitch. Kells fires his Beretta. Wagner gouges the spear of Siegfried into Adorno, and, sa- and Adorno says in German, to be continued. That's it. <laughs> the midget thinks again. Watch one in Sylvester is tripping. The midget's the baby. Daddy. Well, now you know more about R. Kelly than you certainly knew more than an hour ago. Uh, thanks to Homeroom 101 and everyone there, uh, especially thanks to them for letting us record this for the podcast. Um, everyone who presented in a course, um, the folks in charge of Homeroom 101. Yeah, um, they're great and they often do podcast their own shows. So if you go to their website, um, which we'll link in the show notes, um, you can get a lot of their previous lectures and my um, Juggalo lecture is also up there as well. So you can learn more about the ICP, the Insane Clown Posse, and uh, Juggalos. Uh, so just kind of wrapping this up, what kind of lessons can we take away from, from R. Kelly? Um, well, I think I think there's a general lesson that's pretty applicable to a lot of famous people. You know, you're Michael Jackson, you're Bill Clinton, you're every Republican who gets in a sex scandal. <laughs> um, you know, the more you espouse, or first of all, if you're in the light, at limelight and you're... You, 
you just really want people to like you. Usually there's some other side of that. And then there's something to that need. Yeah. Is what you're saying. Yeah. It's a deep, dark black hole. Something that happened. Can't to. be filled. Yeah. And I mean, often it's, you know, your parents made you a child star or you are molested in many of those cases. Um, and the more you sort of rail against something, the more it's probably going to come up in your life. But um, and I think his I mean, I think he does have sort of a even though he would not outwardly admit his problem with children, he would he would outwardly admit that women are definitely his vice. I mean, it's also how he makes his money. And I think that part is really interesting to me. Um, and for me, very personally applicable, the, the idea that I know a lot of people who are really good at their job because they're ADD, you know, but doing that job makes them more ADD. So it's like... Um, the thing which 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 he's being rewarded for essentially, right. you know, being the sex you up sort of R and B star, means he's also further rewarded for being, uh, perhaps for being sexually, uh, if not 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 merely promiscuous, but obsessed, right. obsessive, right? And any, I'm sure, um, from his point of view, getting out of that sort of mental issue would affect his regular career, so he can't do that. So I think for me, that's also an idea that is personally applicable to everyone. Just the idea of like, what's actually, <laughs> you know, considering what your vices are and if if you're, you've made a home for them in your life. Or you're, you're yeah. caught in a, in, a, in a cycle, which is, yeah. which is a reifying, right? Yeah. It's a feedback loop. Right. The more you do it, the more you're rewarded. So the more you do it. Right. And and if you and if you don't want to be there, you don't want to be engaging in those things, it may require some wholesale reevaluation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, if you're a frat boy and you get drunk every night and black out, but everyone thinks it's cool. It's, then you keep getting yeah, drunk and blacking right, exactly. out and you're going to have to decide not to be cool any longer right. if you want to quit getting drunk and blacking yeah, stop out. Stop being cool. That's my that's yeah. my summary of what this well, is. Well, you're right. Oh, then it, so this is the whole other topic which we'll address on the line is is, uh, you know, just because other people like it or seem to like it or you seem to get rewarded for it doesn't necessarily mean it's the thing you ought to be doing. Yeah. Uh, which is applicable to half a television now. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Jenny. Thank you, Paul. <laughs>